It's member-supported radio in northern Minnesota. I'm Heidi Holton with Kari Headland on the Thursday Morning Show. We had a chance to talk with Goldie Taylor. She's a veteran journalist, cable news political analyst, and human rights activist. She's currently a contributing editor at the Daily Beast, where she writes about national politics and social justice issues. She has a brand new memoir out. It's called The Love You Save. It's the story of Goldie in the midst of danger, chaos, and trauma. She's writing about her family, but also hope and how story and books help save her. Thanks for being with us this morning. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you for this time. Yeah. So Goldie, let's, um, let's talk about, there's a quote about your book that says you are retelling your youth by proxy, a side of America that is rarely seen on the page. Can you speak to that? I think I think that's right on. You know, the quote comes from Mickey Kendall, who is the best-selling author of Hood Feminism. We had a chance to talk earlier in uh, earlier last week about the book and about you know our similar experiences and how the intersection of race, gender, and class, you know, in the backdrop of a post uh, Jim Crow America how important that was, informative it was really to our histories. And so while I wanted to tell the story of me, the story of our family, what I really sought to do was tell a story of a nation, um, a nation that has a number of social pathologies, things that beset uh, communities of color more, uh, you know, more predominantly uh, disproportionately in those communities. And so I really wanted to talk about those things in a way that I thought would bring them clear that would have us to focus on those public policy issues that we can really do something about. Poverty, broken education systems, uh, social structures, you know, what we do about the question of race and police, what we do about sexual violence, what we do about uh, families surviving, to, uh, striving to survive, cope and make it in this country. So these issues were very real as your growing up experience was, and you were also grappling with not having control over your young body uh, or your trauma or your pain. And you sat with these traumas that you describe in the book for a long time before releasing them out to the world. There's a lot of evidence now about how trauma can impact our physical bodies for longer than after the traumatic event. How do you think sitting with that for so many years impacted you as a person and as a journalist? You know, while I'm certain that there are scars, that there are maladies that I continue to uh, grapple with today, both physical and emotional. You know, what I know about this is um, there was a study that released only a few days ago from the CDC that talked about young girls like me, but today, um, that so many of our young girls and women are uh, suffering through what I call a pandemic of sexual violence and that that violence leaves them with certain traumas and that they are struggling with mental health care, that in a post-pandemic world where many more people are seeking therapy, we're learning more about young girls who are in need of it too. Um, but for me, I carried those with me for some 40 years. And what I really realized when, you know, I think I was just turning 50, is that I was carrying the obligations of others, that those traumas set upon me um, really were less about the incident itself, but more about how the people in my life handled it. That was more of the trauma for me. It was not seeing a doctor. It was not having the police called. 
It was not even being able to sit down with my mother to sort out what happened to me to help me understand it. I was just 11 years old. And so in my 11-year-old mind, I carried the shame of the violence, of the embarrassment. I felt dirty for so many years until, you know, I decided to write this down to be my own witness. If I could not tell it to my mother or to my family, I could tell it to myself. I could set things right for myself. And so in so many ways, it was a measure of self-healing that came, well, 40 years later. In the book, you talk about your 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 mother's response uh, after the first rape. And was there a sort of um, feeling of betrayal? You know, there really was early on that I felt I had no place to go, no place to be. I thought, in my words, that I belonged to no one and nowhere. And so there was a sense of a feeling of abandonment in my young girl's eye. Looking back now, I see it that she looked for ways to protect me that were within her power. We lived in an all-white town. And so what might it would have been, what might it have been to take your 11-year-old black child to an all-white police force and say that she's been sexually assaulted by a teenage white boy? What would that life would have been like for her? What might she have sacrificed in doing that? And so I was sent to live with my aunt and uncle in a town about 20 miles away to East St. Louis, uh, where I could be more protected, she thought, where I would have someone looking after me uh, 24-7, where there would be at least a decent school up the road where people would care for me in a way that I needed to be. And so my mother was looking for shelter for me, and she found it in family. It's Goldie Taylor. We're talking about her new memoir. It's called The Love You Save. Uh, Goldie, let's talk about where you did find solace, and that's in words and in books. I did. You know, books became a very early escape for me, even before the incident in 1980. Um, but later on, they became a way for me to self-educate, for me to make the world around me make sense. And so I was finding, you know, books on my aunt's shelf. I was finding her encyclopedias, her childcraft books. But then my uncle began bringing home paperbacks. He brought home the autobiography of Malcolm X, as I recall. I found James Baldwin in a public library up the road from us. Uh, a school teacher gave me uh, more editions of more of his works. She handed me Margaret Walker. She handed me Nikki Giovanni and Maya Angelou. Uh, she handed me even William Ernst Henley, um, Mark Twain. Uh, I had already uh, found Jane Eyre and uh, her series of books very early on. But this kind of escape for me provided a ready salve for the pains that I was going through, but also, as I said, made the world really begin to make sense, brought it into clear picture for me. And so, so yeah, and so in that self-education, I found a sense of worth again. I found myself valuable, something worth loving. So this isn't just your story as you were kind of talking about, you know, uh, looking things, looking at this through a different lens, through your mother's eyes. And it's also about your family. Uh, there's lots of family members within this book, your aunt, your cousins. And um, did you come out of writing this memoir with a different perspective than you had going into it of your family members? I did. You know, as you 
work through the pages and work through your story and you begin to talk about the people who populated your life then, you realize that you are capturing them, some of them, at their very worst moments. And you want to know what brought them to those moments. And so as I began to write, I began to look at our family history. I began to ask questions and learning that my mother and aunt had suffered those same traumas around that same age and that there were other things, complications in their lives um, that informed how they showed up in my life. They informed how my older cousins showed up in my life. And so in writing this in going back and opening up the pages of our family story, I came away with a deeper, more profound level of respect for them as people for the circumstances in which you know we were raised and for the lives they continue to lead today. Um, my mother is now retired and living in North and Central Florida. And you know, I I think the traumas still live with her in so many ways. But when I look back on her struggle, on how she sought to put it together every day for three children, her her husband, my father, was murdered when I was just five years old and what kind of life she fashioned for us really is a testament to her resolve to her strength uh to her enduring patience with uh, the world around her um but really the the mantra that you know if the elevator isn't working you take the stairs and looking back now my mother was taking the stairs every day one thing you seem to have in common with members of your family as we read about them is that you work hard. You've worked hard to get where you're at today. Your mother worked very hard, didn't she? She did. She worked extremely hard um, through her life. She started Marriott Corporation as a waitress in a family restaurant and worked her way up to working the front desk and then a supervisor and into management. That happened because she went to work every day because she was able somehow to tuck and and, uh, compartmentalize her pains in order to get through the day. For us back then, she didn't have necessarily dreams for her children, um, at least dreams that lasted into years. Her dreams went into the next hour, into the next day. She really wanted us to be able to survive. I took on that survival instinct as an adult, and maybe it's worked to my favor in some ways. In some ways, maybe it has been a hindrance. But I knew that going to work every day, educating myself formally, would be an important part of my future and whatever future I could provide for my children. And so I inherited that sense of taking the stairs from my mother, because certainly the elevator for me did not work. So the title of this book, The Love You Save, what does that mean to the story of your life? You know, I think there are a couple of things. Uh, The Love You Save is an my, a, a Jackson Five song uh, from the early 70s. And they were indeed, you know, my favorite uh, group at the time. Um, I think the world over, the Jackson Five were were renowned. And so the tune was in my head as I was writing the book itself. But it came to mean for me that I could carry these traumas in one way and let them break me down. Um, And they did on occasion. There were many, many days, too numerous to count, where I just simply couldn't get out of bed to do the work of raising my own children. But what was more important was that I took that pain 
and poured them into new things so that they came out love that I poured them into my children, into my community, into my career, into things that I thought mattered. It was about the love that I saved to pour into my children, the love that I saved to pour into my community, into my family, but it was also about the love that I saved for myself in so many ways. And I don't know that this was necessarily my own doing, but those incidents didn't take me out as maybe they could have. There were uh, a couple of suicide attempts when I was a young girl. Thank goodness I was not successful, but I carried those kinds of weights well into well into my adulthood. Only now am I able to put them into their proper perspective. Only now can I live and love, I think, with a level of clarity, with a level of investment with a level of fearlessness that maybe I didn't have as a teen. We played a song for you as, as we started our conversation, and it was called Some of Us Are Brave. And it seems to me that you telling this story is brave, and it might not be easy for the other people in your life to have this story out. How has it been dealing with your family, and what are they thinking? You know, when I wrote the first several pages, that was exactly my fear that the people that populated my life then and talking about them in this way now, that it would harm relationships, maybe uh, sever them even more so than they had been over the years. Thank goodness, though, it hasn't. Thank goodness, though, it has drawn us closer to opening uh, and opening the chapters on this story. I wanted to give them context. As I said earlier, I wanted to talk about what informed the people that showed up in my life and how they showed up. Um, And I said to myself, as long as I can be my own witness, the rest of it would really have to take care of itself. And so in writing this book, I wanted to be on the one hand very selfish about how um, I move forward. But on the other hand, I wanted to give a level of compassion and context uh, to those people as well. And so I hope that I achieved both the most heartbreaking part about this is as I wrote the story, I believed that there would be people in the broader world who might find hope in it, that might figure out a way to become their own witnesses. But within days of the publishing of the book, I learned that it was an older cousin who is in the book. Um, Bug is her name in the book, but Bug had been assaulted at the very same age as me and that she had been pregnant and had miscarried that child at 12 years old. If you can only imagine that kind of trauma and that it had come at the hands of an even older cousin. We learned that just in the days following the publishing of the book. And so I hope that, and and we talked again just this morning, I hope that at the very least, if this book doesn't reach anyone else, that it has touched Bug in a way that she can become her own witness now. I just keep thinking for some reason as we talk to you, 11 keeps just like, it's right in front of my face, how young you were, thinking of 11-year-olds now. And I think in some ways we have more language to talk about trauma that happens. Um, you, It was in the 80s when this happened to you, but in some ways it's not all that different either. And it, I just, I was so struck by how 
your body at that age, you should be able to be a little girl and how that probably affected how you felt about your body and how little girls who are suffering trauma now, it's going to affect, you know, their self-esteem and who they are and who they present and how, how they present in the world. Oh, surely. You know, my own granddaughter is turning 10 in April. Uh, so a year from now, she'll be the exact age that I was. I could not imagine this kind of the, the horror. I couldn't imagine this kind of trauma, this kind of pain coming to her. And I couldn't imagine what my response might be, quite frankly. Um, but I, you know, as I said, you know, there is that one CDC study, but there's another that points to teen pregnancy in this country, the rates of teen pregnancy are down. But when you look at um, pre-adolescent, 11, 12-year-old girls, the level, the number of pregnancies is up, if you can only imagine that. And they're up because the young boy or the man involved happened to be, you know, five, 10 years older. And so our young girls, 10, 11, 12 years old, reporting uh, pregnancy at that age, it is because they are suffering violence from grown men. And that's still happening in the country. That is what happened to me um, when I was a young girl. And so, so little has changed in that way. Just as I did not have uh, mental health services available to me in that day, in this country now we're at a crisis for mental health. And where do families find the resources necessary uh, to support their children? Um, we have a care question going on in the country today where families have too few resources uh, to support raising and helping uh, children when they're working, uh, when they're unattended to. Jane Fonda did a study and lost a, a program called the Four O'Clock Project because between the hours of, I think it's three and four, in the afternoon when children get home from school, that's when their parents aren't there. And that's when the violence typically strikes. In fact, that is exactly when it happened for me in those hours. And so too few things have really changed. I think, you know, back on what happened in my life and how my family uh, was forced to deal with it then, I can only imagine the struggles that parents are going through today in this environment. It's Goldie Taylor. The new memoir is called The Love You Save. You know, we've talked a lot about the trauma in this, but there's a lot of hope in this story, too. I imagine you wanted that to come out. I did. You know, I was talking to my best friend about uh, writing this book before I even put a word to the page. And she said, you know, as I sat, you know, teary-eyed and, and barely able to speak, she said, but you know what I know about you, Goldie? Every day wasn't a bad day. I want you to make sure you write about the joy. And and that I did. Not only did I write about the books, I wrote about the people who gave them to me. I wrote about the school friends who were blindly, uh, didn't know what had happened to me, but supporting uh, my growth anyway. Um, and so in that, in that place, it made the book something good. I wanted, you know, we all know how the story ends. We know that Goldie grows up to thrive and, and has a big career uh, in big media. We know all of those things. But for the joy that I had during those years, but for those moments of beauty that I had, I'm certain that we wouldn't be having this conversation today and certainly not having it in this way. 
You can find more information at goldietaylor.com. Thank you so much for your time today. It's good to meet you. And thank you for your story, Goldie. Thank you so much. It's good to meet you all as well. You too.